Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. This episode is my interview with Lawrence Donegan about his 1998 book Four Iron in the Soul. The book documents Lawrence's year spent caddying for Ross Drummond, then the 438th ranked golfer in the world. It's a classic tale of the underdog, a peek behind the scenes of professional golf. But it's also a hilarious travelogue. 20 years on from publication, we met up to talk about the influences of George Plimpton, Bill Bryson, and how Lawrence pieced together this classic sports book. Let's kick off our discussion of Four Iron and the Soul by talking a bit about George Plimpton. I mean, he's a really fascinating character in himself, Plimpton, amazing life story. But I don't know if he was a pioneer, but he certainly was a proponent of what you maybe call participatory journalism or writing, where you know he became part of the story and, and, and that became uh, the cornerstone of many of his books, like you know, Paper Line, I think was a... Yeah, the uh, bogeyman was the golf one. There's a collection of stuff, these participatory stuff, and it seems, to, it seems to work a little bit better. There's a great one, I can't remember what the book's called, but he like, pl- played triangle with a New York Philharmonic that's right yeah. all that you know yeah. and it's just you know 25 pages brilliant it's so a great much. great kind of trope that and I wonder was that an influence on, on you deciding to, to pick up Ross Drummond's bag for a year yeah I mean it, it was you know and I mean people know about now know about Plimpton but back in the you know this is 20, 20 years ago no, Plimpton had kind of slightly been forgotten I think he was still alive he was still alive then but that kind of thing had slightly been forgotten, especially in, in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really knew who George Plimpton was. Yeah. But the kind of real influence, there was like an American golf writer, a guy called Michael Bamberger, yeah. who's still working at uh, SI. And he'd done this book called To the Links Land. And I, I, I think um, it was published here by a Scottish publisher over in Edinburgh. Mainstream. Mainstream. Bamberger's a pretty decent writer. He... Um, he carried for a guy called Peter Teravanian, who was a Buddhist Buddhist golfer, which is a thing apparently in America. And he, uh, so, but the book was, a, it was an odd book. It was a, a kind of hybrid book. The first 90 pages he carried for, was about him caddying for Teravanian in a couple of tournaments here and there. And then the rest of it was Michael drops the bag and then goes and off, comes to Scotland to find the soul of golf, which is a, a subject of which I have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. <laughs> I'm not into the kind of mystical golf thing. But the first ninety pages was brilliant, mm. and when I read that, I thought, "Geez, oh, that could be a that that's could be a, that's a good idea." I mean, that, there's no there's no new ideas. So it was a kind of two things. It was a, I was a huge fan of Plimpton. So the Plimpton thing, but the the I'm not going to lie, and I've said it before. You know, the Bamberger book did gave me was a kernel of the idea. And I just thought it'd be a great book to go from day one of the season to the last day of the season. And kind of track that narrative arc. I mean, I, I think the the purity of the concept is really important in terms of because people have to get the idea in their head. This is what this is, and I think books that try to do too many different things fall through the cracks. I think you know. Yeah. So that's quite perceptive of you to say, "Oh no, that's a book in there." You know, that's yeah. a book you should have written. So I, I'm going yeah, to I'm going to I'm going to take that. Yeah. And Ellison, why do you turn the page? You know, you want to know what's going to happen next. You've got it's got to be a story. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's a, if it's a sports book or it's. Uh, 
like a pop psychology book. I mean, there has to be a has to be a story. I mean, yeah. the person has to have a reason to turn the next page because they want to know. You're they're invested in the in the characters, aren't they? And you you want to know what happens to to the to the characters, and that's you know. So the narrative, the you know the kind of narrative arc, the narrative structure was very very important to me. I had to have a, a an outcome. You know, I didn't. You, know, I didn't want some nebulous thing like going off to search for the soul. I mean, no offence to to the Lynx language. It's a great book. People should try and get their hands on it. But uh, I, I wanted a, a proper story. Yeah. You know, and and if to work within that that you know that time structure. You know, start of the season, end of the season. That gave me a chance. Yeah. Still wasn't guaranteed. You know, because all sorts of things could have happened within that. But it gave me a chance of actually constructing a story. I mean, I, I do want to keep this focused on Four Iron and the Soul. Sure, sorry, is, yeah. it, no, 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 no. But in terms of what I'm about to say, but it is important to to kind of develop this participatory stuff a bit more yeah, because sure. if people haven't read your other books, you know, you you've got one where you move to County Donegal yeah. um, for a year and work in this like tiny newspaper. Yeah. You've got one where you go to California and you sell secondhand cars. Yeah. So this was a thing that was. you know that you were interested in was like putting yourself at the centre of the story and then you know working working off the the kind of the arc that that gives you. Yeah, I I, um, I wish I'd been able to keep it going, but I just kind of ran out of ideas in, in, in that world. For instance, I wrote a book about selling used cars in Silicon Valley at the height of the boom. It was called California Dreaming, and. To be honest, all modesty aside, it's the best book I've ever read because the, the narrative structure really, really works. But it's interesting with publishers, you, you know, I, I got quite a lot of money for that book and it didn't sold about 50 copies in America. That's fine. But the problem was it was, uh, they said it wasn't aspirational. You know, people, you know, why do you people read books? I mean, they read books because they're invested in the characters. They read books because there are all sorts of different reasons. But another reason is, uh, you know, I wish I could do that. I mean, I, I could see myself doing that. But nobody, <laughs> nobody could see themselves <laughs> selling used cars. Uh, it was, uh, I thought I could develop a, a theme in that. But you, you, you only have so many ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I hold my hands up. You know, I, I, I kind of run out of great ideas. Yeah, but the, the participatory stuff, is, it's, a, it's a trope that you have to kind of handle with care, I think, because if you fail to walk that line, then you can easily dip into self-indulgence. And totally. I, I, think, I think the reason that, that your books work so well in that respect is like there's, the, there's not a lot of introspection. You know, you're not standing about stroking your chin. You're engaging with lots of interesting folk. And I think, you know, obviously we both come from a journalism background. Yeah. That must have infused a lot of that because you're talking to loads of people and you're, you're, you're finding out the interesting things in their life. Yeah, because, well, again, you're, you're dead, right? Because I can think, I mean, I won't, we won't name them, but I can think of a few participatory books where, I mean, it is just a lot of chin stroking, you know? And again, it, these books aren't any, the, the same rules apply, you know? You've got you to gotta have characters. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I built a character for myself, which maybe, you know, wasn't a complete 100% facsimile of who I am. You know, I'm well aware of my deficiencies, but I'm, you know, in the books, I'm incredibly, you know, self-deprecating. But again, that's a, a, you know, how do you build characters that people like? Would you, do you want to? I'm not an arrogant person, uh, but people don't love or people don't not interested in self-indulgent, arrogant people. So you present a, a portrait of, a, certainly, I did a portrait of myself which wasn't entirely 
exactly who I was. I mean, there was some of it in there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was all about, it wasn't about me really. It was about the people, the, the, the world in which you, you inhabit. That's what I was more interested yeah. in. Because I mean, who wants to read about me? You know? But it's interesting you talk about the aspirational aspect of California dreaming, yep. your book and sell, selling the cars, and then how it was perceived in the States that that was the reason that it didn't, wasn't a commercial success. Yep. But this book, in a way, is quite, for Island so is quite aspirational in a sense of, if you are a, a sport lover, right, everyone aspires to yeah. step inside the ropes totally. and say, Rory, 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 Rory. <laughs> but that's a that's brilliance of it's a brilliance of caddying. Yes. Because it's the only I, I think it is. I'm sure there's other things. I mean if you were the guy changing the wheels on Lewis Hamilton's car, I guess. But you know, you wouldn't no, be right. Same, I, but it's not the same. <laughs> because you're he, you're not you know in any way driving a car. But with the caddying, you're actually you're you're there. I mean, you are you are there, and you don't have to be. You're there. I mean, it's it's uh, it's unique in sport. I think I can't think of any other position in sport where you have that access, not only to the kind of physical space, but also the mental space. And that's part of the you know professional sport. I think you speak to anybody involved in professional sport. A lot of it is is is, is to do with the head. You know, it's not just the physical things that you're doing. It's to you know, you know what, what's inside your head, and you're, you're the cat because there's nowhere else. The, the professional athlete has to reveal himself to you because there's nobody else. So the, the caddying thing was, was, I mean, talk about. Again, you don't even th see when you're sort of thinking of an idea for a book. You don't even think along these lines. It's only afterwards it occurs to you. Bloody hell! What well, was a you know that God? That was a brilliant. That was a brilliant idea. But I, you know, but in ways that you didn't think there was. You, know, you kind of think, oh, this is a good idea. But it was an absolutely phenomenal idea mm. in ways that you didn't th I didn't yeah. think about when I, when I stole it from the side. <laughs> but it's great when you, you have this, you go into it with this kind of childlike enthusiasm that you firmly believe you can influence the outcome of professional sport. You know, know. You, you know, but you can't do that in any other sport. You can't do it in any no. other sport, but it's so tantalising that to think that you can you know, lay a glove on, on something that's going to happen in this sphere, you know. Yeah. I kind of love that but aspect the, of the book, but also I love the, there's the, the aspirational aspect of, of golf in general because it's one of these Sports that Lawrence Donegan can caddy for Ross Drummond under those circumstances. Ben Curtis can win the Open. You know, know. crazy stuff can happen. I've in got golf. a great story about Ben yeah. Curtis. I know, I know where, uh, the, um, he turned up. It was his first ever Open Championship. Turned up in the UK. This unknown kid, managed by IMG. IMG uh, called a mate of mine. Got um, we got a guy over here from America. Uh, he needs a caddy for the Open. Andy Sutton. So Andy, big West Ham fan actually. Great lad. He. Uh, Turns up Ben on the Sunday before the open starts. Ben Curtis is a kid from Ohio, can't play golf, you know, and Andy is watching the guy trying to hit lob, you know, he's got his lob wedge out in a links course and Andy's like, here mate, there's an eight iron, you're not chipping with anything else a week. <laughs> a week later, they, they win the open, phenomenal. So, but, that, but that's the beauty, you were talking about like, what makes you turn the page, right? But part of what drives the narrative in Four Iron and the Soul uh -huh. is you're saying, oh, it'd be crazy, I'd love Ross Drummond to win this. I know, team. yeah. I love it, you know. <laughs> Actually, one of the great ironies of it was, uh, which I did, I kind of danced around it in the book, I can see it now. So I'm writing the book, because the delivery dates are there right, you know, a week after the end of the season or something. So I have to sort of write it as I'm going along. Right. And I say to him about six weeks in advance, I'm not going to go and caddy for you at the British Masters or something. It was in Newcastle, somewhere in Newcastle. Uh, so you need to get a caddy for that week. No bother, right. So I go to Donegal to the cottage to write, start writing, you know, and, I'm, and I can't believe it. I'm watching this British Masters. And Ross Drummond, he's, you know, he's in the he's in the final pairing on the, on the Sunday afternoon with a different guy, and I'm thinking, oh my god, 
You know, so in a, as in, purely as a writing exercise, how are you going to, you know, what if he wins and I'm not there? Anyway, fortunately, Retief Goosen, <laughs> fortunately, that sounds so bad, but Retief Goosen <laughs> shot a 63 or something. It was actually Retief Goosen. That was his first ever victory uh, in, on a European tour. But yeah, but it is uniquely in professional sport. Caddying gives you access, as, as I say, not just to the physical space, to the physical events, but, uh, you know, you get a real insight into... I mean, credit to Ross Drummond to be able, you know, to have the guts yeah. to reveal himself like that, you know, to, to because it's pretty. We had he had no copy approval on the book around. There was none of that. It was, you know, let's go. I'm, I want to do it. Let's go. And you know, he was prepared to. I mean, that takes guts. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I think now people always say, oh, you should do a follow up to that book. I, I don't think anybody would be allowed to write that book anymore. Yeah, the access. Uh, we'll come back to the access, but it's interesting you were talking about the writing process yeah. and I, I want to ask you about that because there is an immediacy comes from, from, from reading it that you feel like you're in the moment and I, and I was wondering if you were kind of writing this I'm not saying every night after a round or, or, or whatever but you you were obviously note taking yeah. and you were obviously you know you talk about going to the uh, the cottage in Donegal yeah. to write. So you were you were trying to do it effectively in real time. Is that it's right? Basically, yeah. yeah, effectively in real time, which is a tricky process because yeah. you're trying to construct this narrative art. Yeah. But what you got to basically do is just go for it, and then worry about it later. And what happened was, I mean, I didn't have. I mean, if you go back and look at, say, um, it's a really the Penguin edition of um, the last I couldn't F. Scott's was Gerald's last book. At the back end of it, they've got he's got his um, plan. His, his plan for the book it's astonishing it works on about eight levels I don't know if you saw the J.K. Rowling stuff how she laid out all the Harry Potter books astonishing level of planning I mean I had you know I had 18 chapter titles and, and that was kind of that was it so you kind of write along and not as you know you t- I took a couple of spaces off just to try and knock out four or five chapters mm. and kind of got lucky I, I, it's just serendipity or something I just got lucky I had to go back at the end and rewrite I had to rewrite the first couple of chapters because they, you know, they just didn't sit. Even yeah. the style of writing. I mean, if you're writing a book over a year, you're writing different, differently at the start of the year than you are at the end of the year. You, sometimes you write. I don't know if you've spoken to other authors about this, but when I'm sitting down to write, I basically I'm writing like the, the last book I read. You're reading a Chandler, but you're, you're writing like Raymond Chandler, you know, and then, or you're trying to, you know, yeah, you know to. obviously. So there's that, or you're, then you're reading a Bill Bryson book, you're writing like Bill Bryson. So, so it's, it's difficult. So you, you, the process is you, I, I, you did it, uh, you had to go back, and then you had to kind of even out the... Yes, I get that. Yeah. You understand? You know, it's like smoothing over plaster and taking out the lumps and the bumps and stuff like that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we continue with this episode of Between the Lines, I want to tell you about two books from Backpage that you might be interested in. Firstly, Pep City, The Making of a Super Team by Lou Martin and Paul Ballas, two Spanish sports writers who have been embedded with Manchester City since Pep Guardiola arrived in the summer of 2016. No other journalist has had this kind of access and the result is a behind-the-scenes account of how Guardiola's winning machine was built and what it takes to keep it on the road. This features exclusive interviews with everyone from Pep and the strategists on the board to the superstar players who won all there is to win in English football last season. And if you're interested in what the next level in the football arms race might look like, check out Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter, who has appeared in this series of Between the Lines, interviewed by Neil about this book. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport and especially elite football is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimisation, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. Pep City, the making of a super team, and Astro Ball, the new way to win it all, out now from Backpage. You were obviously doing a lot of note taking and yes, kind of trying lot. to log every stuff day mentally every time you know there was a worthwhile exchange with Ross or like a shot or whatever. I mean, you were saying, right? Yeah, I had to do every you know, after every round. There was a brief notes, and then at night you would I'd always take an hour out and just write write notes. I did tape one round. I had a t- I was thinking how easy it would be now to tape something, but at the time it was such a convoluted. Yeah. You know, I had a Walkman Pro. Remember those big black Walkman Pros? You probably don't. You're too young. Yeah, big walking pro and a kind of microphone sticking out and oh it was yeah. a total mess but that worked that was chapter three or four and i just basically printed a, a transcript of that round and it worked out it was it was a funny right. interlude it was a whole chapter of a, of a round of golf which again i'm sure people will correct me but i don't think that anybody had ever you know you think about it now and people look at tv and they go and the, the microphones get close and you can hear the caddy and the player talking and people rave about this on social media. This is brilliant. I'd, I wish we could hear more caddy player chats. So I, back in 1996, I, I, yeah, I did it. I was a, I was a trailblazer. <laughs> I taped an entire round and printed it. And I don't think that exists anywhere else, anywhere in golf, golf, golf literature. I want to talk a little bit about the kind of road to publication because you know yep. part of this podcast is about the process. It's yep. not a walkthrough of content as such. It's about you know the parts of the process that maybe people don't know about. Yeah. I remember you telling me that it was actually it became a bit of an auction for, for the for there was. The, the rights to the book and stuff, and which was, which was really interesting. And it's, it's an interesting idea because we talk a lot about publishing and the nature of how it's changed over the last 20 years, I think, is, is interesting. And I think maybe now what you find is like brand journalists with like no-brainer ideas are the ones that will command big advance fees. Yeah. You know, you think, well, obviously that, that's going to be a book that's going to sell that number of copies. Mm-hmm. But I think what you lose in that is you lose the quirk, you lose the kind of outliers and these kind of yeah. stories where the, the, the human drama is at the core. And 
maybe there was more of a premium on that back then. I don't know. Maybe maybe the market was was more set up for a bootleg for Ireland. So do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, well, I'm not I've not had much contact with the publishing world in recent years, but uh, so I'm, I can't really speak to. Well, I can as a as a consumer. You know, you take a brand journalist now. You you're right. I mean, it's pretty formulaic stuff, and these are a lot of these books are being dashed off. You know, in between their normal day jobs. Yes. So, and, that, and to me, that shows. But, but back then, yeah, I was just a guy. I'd been working at The Guardian. I was pretty young, never written a book. I'd hardly written I'd written a few features for G2, which is just started. So, but I wasn't like a big-name Guardian feature writer or anything like that. But I did. A, I had a feature I could show a publisher, and I wrote a kind of 3,000-word proposal. And I can't speak to how the publishers are now, but back, people were, you know, prepared to take, take risks. Well, it's yeah. only, I mean, the advance, well... To me, it was a lot of money at the time. I think it was 40 grand or something. That was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. But uh, for an un- unknown, untried, I think it, part of the, it spoke to the, um, I think it spoke to the idea. People, I mean, it was such a, you can get that kind of action. You can do that. My goodness. Well, why, why, well, let's go. What, what kind of drove the early success of the books in terms of, was it the r- reviews? I mean, did, did it get reviewed widely? Was it hard to try and get no, it? it got, I, people? I, I tell you, it got, uh, yeah, it got, I don't know how, again, how did it get reviewed? I have no idea. Our old pal, Graham Hunter, he was a, he was working at the Daily Mail at the time, and Graham even, actually, yeah, did a feature on caddies at the Ryder Cup called me. That was a, you know, so there was that. But at the, the breakthrough review, well, there was two reviews, I'll never forget them. One was Patrick Collins in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, Patrick was a, a phenomenal writer, really respected. He gave it a, just a, I think he picked it as book of the year. And the other one was um, Lynn Truss, who was a huge name. She'd just written that book. Eat Shits and Leaves. Yeah, and she gave it, I mean, yeah, that's on the front page. A joy to read. Not since Bill Bryson plotted a random route through small-town America has such a breezy idea for a book had a happier or funnier result. You've got to remember, Bill Bryson was enormous yeah. back then. Enormous. So, and I didn't even know Lintras, you know. I mean, you'll find I'm not giving anything away. A lot of these things, you know, it's a small world. I mean, Private Eyes have done a column about it for years, you know. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know Pat, Pat Collins. I didn't know Lintrust. So those reviews, and then of course it's just word of mouth. Yes. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to deny. It. It's a, I think it's a, it's a great read. It's an easy read. And just word of mouth gets out, and it's, and it's a great idea. It was a great idea, and it was an easy read, and it was funny, and you know, and word of mouth. There's nothing, nothing beats word of mouth. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I, t- I totally agree. I think that's, I think that's still the main driver to longevity as much as anything because I think if you in terms of the type of publishing we were talking about before about brand journalists writing on around big brand football clubs or whatever yeah. you're chasing 5,000 10,000 sales but if you want something to stand the test of time yeah. and be, be sitting in a quite a noisy Glasgow street 20 yeah. odd years later yeah. talking about it then it needs to be the word of mouth needs to be the driver that's it, it. To be, yeah, and even now, in fact, I wasn't again. It's not before Ryan, but I was in Donegal last week uh, on holiday and still walking around. People love that book, and, and people still come up and talk to me about it. And it's all just word of mouth. Uh, and the golf thing again, it happens all the time. There's a, I think you tweeted out something about yesterday. You're coming to see, we're going to talk about the book yesterday. I mean, I was looking at the. Yeah. I mean, it's just people love it. People love it. Absolutely, they don't like love it. it. You know, they, they love, love it. it. You know? Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. <laughs> 
But I, mean, I know we've talked about this before, but in a lot of ways it's not really a sports book. It's a great story of a, a noble journeyman who's trying to make good, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, it's a kind of universal tale. Well, the, you know? again, well, the first real proper novel ever written was, was Don Quixote. I, yeah. You know, and I take a quote from Don Quixote because, I, I mean, again, that's what, that was the idea I had in my head. Maybe it was a, just a great idea. Maybe, I, it, but that's what I had in my head. I had Don Quixote in my head, that kind of nobleman, slightly deluded, but not that Ross was deluded in any, any kind of way. And, and I think part of the appeal of the book is him, because people read it and they go, oh my God, why is this guy putting up with it? I mean, this guy's phenomenal, so they, they like Ross, because he's putting up with this idiot that's standing beside him, you know, you know, trying to not ruin, not trying to ruin his career, but you know, he, you know, and people like that. You know, what a good guy. Good, what he's a good guy. I, I want to, you know, I'm invested in him because he's a good guy, and he's been trying his whole life to win a, a golf tournament, and I like that. Yeah. You know, so the again, it comes down to story, comes down to character. It's uh, and you kind of write these books, or write that book, and. You know, you just write a book, and it's just some sort of alchemy that you you don't understand what's happening. That's a good word. Um, and lo and behold, at the end of it, it's like something it comes together, and something's happened that you're not even aware it was happening at the time. I think Nick Hornby talked about this about Fever Pitch. You just wrote a book, not that Fever uh, got that's anywhere near as good as Fever Pitch, but you know, there's just some sort of alchemy, mysterious thing that happens in the process of writing a book, and the book is greater then for some reason it's actually better and bigger and more appealing than you actually intended. And lo and behold, as you say, 20 years later we're still talking about it and people will still talk about it. People absolutely love it in a way. And those kind of books that hit, just hit some kind of chord that you, you know, some kind of bullseye that you weren't aiming for, but somehow it hit that bullseye and, and, and that's why that's why they last. I mean, obviously Bryson's an influence. We've talked about Bill yeah. Bryson before um, in our chats and I know you love The, the Lost Continent. There's the I one did. In, in the States and there's a brilliant book. And I come from Des Moines. Somebody had to. Well, they're talking about opening lines and you've got the first thing to understand about caddying is that it's not brain surgery. It is more complicated than that. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful opening line. I mean, I actually read, and I was coming here this morning, I read the first three or four pages. They're sensational. The first three or four pages are brilliant, right? And I think, but I think that's really important. Yeah. We talk about this all the time in the books that we publish. You have to set out your stall. If you alienate somebody in the first yeah. two lines, they might be like, do you know what? I'm just going to leave this. It's interesting though. I mean, if you alienate somebody, certainly, right? But I wonder, a lot of books I read now, you know, they're not, you know, when I go into a bookstore, I always read the first two paragraphs. I just just sort of wonder how's what's this how's this writer doing it. But you can you can draw people in a, a bit a little bit slower. I decided, but again, I come from Des Moines. Somebody had to. I mean, it's exactly the same rhythm. I'm not gonna. I, I stole it. I stole the rhythm from the from the Bryson thing. But that took so long. I, I, yeah, I, that I, was going to be my next question. Yeah, I, I took so long, and I I, I I I remember when it came and it came to me. I was driving from Donegal to London. We were living in London at the time. And it came to me somewhere around, I got the ferry across the Stranraer, and it came to me somewhere, somewhere about Liverpool. But I was playing it, and it was, and it was just completely stolen. The rhythm, it was all about the rhythm of that. Isn't that funny? Yeah. But that took four hours. I mean, literally, it was, you know, four or five or six hours, just this one thing just in your head, in your head, in your head. And you're just crafting it and chiseling just it. Just trying, trying to get it, yeah. you know, and I, all I had was the rhythm. With it. I just, I loved that Bryson book. It's phenomenal. It's brilliant. brilliant. And Bryson was a much younger man then, really spiky. It was, that book is really... 
nasty is the wrong word, but it's really quite nasty in points. It's really yeah. pointed. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. doesn't pull any punches whatsoever. And it's not. Some of his latter books are a bit kind of twee and a bit more. You know, but that one was full on. Yeah, you know, ripped the place apart. Yeah, but, it's, it's quite interesting. Now, as part of the series, I'm making a little kind of mini talk on uh, the miracle of Castel de Sangro oh, right, and yeah. Joe McGuinness. And, yeah, and he comes through as uh, not an entirely kind of likable character, certainly well, prickly. He worked for Richard Nixon. Yeah, he wrote the famous book about Nixon. Very, very prickly demeanour uh, in some cases, but yeah. it's great. You know, that's you kind of you want these sharp angles in books. Yeah. You know, yeah. and certainly with this book, and certainly with the Irish book as well, you, you kind of you, people invite you into their world, and I feel. I, I mean, some people, some authors are maybe different, but I felt, you know, I better not come into this world, kick over all the, you know, the, the, the furniture and then just fuck off afterwards. Um, so I was slightly cognizant of, you know, I, you know... I, I think that comes through. That, yeah. That, the, 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 a level of humility definitely comes through. But, also, but you're not afraid to put yourself in, in situations where you're going to observe interesting things. Right. No, no, but also, you've got to be... I think you've got to show a bit of respect to people. Yeah. You know, not least... Well, you've got to show a bit of respect to people in any circumstance. But, but they invite... They allowed me into that world. I mean, I went to... You know, you go to rural Ireland, it's very easy for somebody to go in there and write a hobby oh, Jesus, yeah. you know, all that bullshit. I mean, I was a part of... You know, certainly with the golf, but I was really cognizant of that. And maybe it could have been a little bit spikier in points. But what my level of what I consider to be spiky is probably a, a bit more intense than what a kind of average person, because I'm quite a spiky person. But anyway, I was re- very aware of, you know, I don't want to come in here and just trash people, because, you know, what's the point in that? I mean, the book's been a commercial success, and yep. we're talking 20 odd years later, yep. still in print, you were saying? Still in print, yeah. Yep. 30 odd reprints. Isn't that amazing? 39, I think it is, maybe 40 now. But it, I mean, it's important that you come up with something that good, then, you know, you deserve for it. You know, to, to earn the spoils from it, I guess. But I, I guess the, my question would be, in terms of how much, how much was that book a platform for the things that you went on to do? It obviously gave you the template for other books. Yeah. But also, and we'll maybe just finish with this, this you went on to become a, a golf writer for The Guardian. I did, yeah. You know, so that must have facilitated it that did. transition as well. It did, because I, I had a terrible interview for that job. But <laughs> I did. There was better better applicants for me for that job, but um, so, but, but it did. It really did, and it was a. In many ways, I sometimes wonder if I was just one of those writers. I mean, not to get too many me me me's, but one you know whose best idea was the first idea. You know, I kind of worry. You worry about that sometimes. There's no downsides to it, but that that was you know you spend your whole life. It's that first album thing. Your your best album. It's a bit like Lloyd Holmes Emotions. Our best album was our first album. Yeah. You spend your whole life thinking about that, uh, that one thing, and then you have to do it again and again and again. Great title as well, Four Islands. Well, that was, a, again, before I did the book, I wrote a feature in The Guardian about that world. I went and carried it for a week mm-hmm. uh, on the tour, and I came back and handed it in, and, and lo and behold, it's on G2 the next day, and the headline is uh, Four Islands. So, so was, was that a sub-editor? A sub-editor, yeah. yeah. It was a different title in America. But, uh, again, what do you think of that title? I, I made more, it was more like a, it was like a kind of comedy. It was one of the... But they, it should they have had, been a three-iron. Uh, maybe it should have been a three-iron. Which is, which is a line from the book. It's from a line from but the book. But it's not the... Yeah, it's not get d- yeah, it doesn't get yeah because maybe it four, makes more sense, but it doesn't matter. No, it do, yeah, it's but not. four iron because it does speak. 
you know, a, you can read a book in many different levels. So there's a kind of, I think there's a kind of level of depth to four iron, you know, in the kind of soul thing. I mean, it's not exactly, I mean, also it's a joke about the Jean Paul Sartre, isn't it? Iron and the Soul, it's a Sartre book. Yeah, the, the Yanks love it. I, I don't know. Yeah, it, was, it made it more like a comedy, like a comedy book. And it wasn't right. really, it was, I thought it was a bit more than that. Yeah, but you know what? You're a young guy. It's your first book. You're just like some American publisher wants to publish this book. Oh Jesus Christ! Well, we, you want you want to change the title? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's this kind of thing now. Oh, absolutely. But it's just well, it's like uh, again going back to the music reference. You know, oh, you want to change the producer? Sure. Oh, you want to get the, throw the drummer out and bring a session drummer in? Yeah, sure. Okay, whatever, whatever stuff that you wouldn't see. The older you get, you just go no. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, nobody, young guys wouldn't do it now either. Yeah. Yeah, pretty proud of it. Perfect. Thanks very much for your time, Alan. Thank you for listening to Between the Lines. This season includes interviews with Oliver Kay, Ben Reiter, Andy Mitten, Daniel Gray, Alison McConnell, Hugh MacDonald, David Goldblatt, and a documentary on the miracle of Castel de Sangro. Check out archive episodes featuring Mike Calvin, Rory Smith, and many more. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a review. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.